Today's episode of How to Be an Anti-Racist. So it's the third episode, which is chapter three of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, I want to start. Um, this is a, again. I tell you, I'm trying to figure out the format. So today it's going to be a little different. Well, a lot different. Um, so today I want to start with a um, some explanations, so a little bit of warning. I want to get into the text, and there's actually homework now, and then I want to um, answer a community question. Someone sent me an email, so that's the format that we'll be taking today, and I'll see how that works and if that feels good to me. If not, I'll switch it up next week. So um, one of the things is, before I start, I want to begin with a warning. Um, for whiteness who's reading this book from the hashtag cause the same community. Reading this book or any other does not make you an anti-racist expert compared with the lived experiences of the individuals who experience racism directly, have a direct impact. I'm seeing a lot of conversations, um, and it's not just this book. Um, I am really questioning um, what role does um, critical, and I'll put in air quotes, whiteness studies, um, the role it plays in anti-racist work. Um, because I initially had planned to make um, White Fragility the next book we read. And after doing some thinking, um, I've decided that I will not be censoring any white authors on this podcast. Um, I see, definitely see the need and where whiteness studies fits into anti-racist work. Because let's be honest, for many white people, um, understanding this message from another white person is what you need because you won't listen to me as a black woman. And that it's for me, whiteness work, whiteness studies is a prerequisite for anti-racist work. And your anti-racist work should be taught or led by individuals who have lived experiences of racism. Um, so I wanted to say that. Um, Anti-racist work should not and cannot center whiteness. And that's why I believe that whiteness studies, books like um, Unpacking Your, um, I forgot the whole title of it, Unpacking, I don't feel like looking for it right now. Unpacking Your Own, whatever it is, dot, dot, dot. And White Fragility, even um, Tim Wise's um, books, on, um, I think are critical for beginning the conversation, for the preschool work that most white people need to do because they are completely oblivious to the world around them. And it stops there. The real anti-racist work, I believe, has to be done by people with lived experiences because the one thing that I'm noticing is that I'm able to halt, I mean, literally halt 
trains of thought that you or arguments that you begin and I already know where it's going to lead and it leads to censoring whiteness. Um, it leads to silencing or um, questioning the experiences of people who are directly impacted by racism. And um, without our stories, the people who are doing whiteness studies would have nothing to girt their work against. Because for you to study whiteness, you've had to have an understanding of anti-blackness. So with that said, that's one thing. The second thing I want to address, and I said this in um, the first episode is, he doesn't believe that, um, he believes that black people can be racist and that I had to sit on that for a minute because um, I wanted to process that. And then, so I wrote where he says that blacks can also be racist. I say that everyone has a degree of internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness. The difference lies in the fact that these internalized beliefs flow only one way, causing harm to other marginalized individuals. Also, it works within never against the existing systems of oppression. This power and control always remains in the system and to those that benefit most. So um, I do not believe that Blacks um, or in any situation where racist, uh, racism is, pra is, is practiced on a group of people, that the people who are directly impacted by that racism can be racist because they do not have um, the systems to flow it the opposite way. So what they can do is further harm other marginalized individuals. And I've talked about this before, that Blacks, um, we had the paper bag test. If you were darker than the paper bag, you were um, too Black for certain sororities, fraternity, I mean, these kind of things. Uh, so colorism, all those things are, are, are um, results and strategies of white supremacy and anti-blackness. So I believe that you can, you can definitely discriminate within um, the race or against other marginalized individuals, but because you do not have power control, you can never reverse that. You can never use those same things to impact the lives of white people. So that's the differentiation I'm going to make, and people can disagree with me, and that's okay. But that's the differentiation I'm going to make um, when it comes to that statement. So I'm going to start um, getting into the text, and I'm not going to go too deep into the text. I'm just going to highlight some notes that I have today, and um, there's some homework. So how I did this is I, on certain pages, I wrote the page number. Again, if you're using... Um, digital. I don't know how this lines up, so I hope um, it makes sense. Um, but here's the, so when the chapter is called power and the first definition, again, I love how he used, um, starts each chapter with a definition, is race, a power construct of collected or merged differences that lives socially. And so right up under that, I put St. Anthony's versus MLK Middle School, Carbondale versus Prairie View um, University in San Diego versus Chocolate City. And it speaks to, when I go to page 37, and I talk, I wrote in the margin of something I highlighted, being the only. So he, he writes, in that classroom, on that 
April day in 1990, my parents discovered that I had interracial puberty. At age seven years, um, at seven years old, I began to feel the encroaching fog of racism overtaking my dark body. It felt big, bigger than me, bigger than my parents and anything in my world and threatening. With a powerful construction, what a powerful construction race is, powerful enough to consume us, and it comes from for us early. I want to um, also highlight. Uh, I was struggling with this um, episode because there's some so many things that I've been witnessing. I've been trying to figure out how to um, put it in a way that I could teach this um, chapter. Um, and this right, this one thing, and it comes for us early. Uh, reminded me. I don't know how many of you saw the video of the little black boy um, and the little white boy who meet each other. Um, I don't know, I feel like I'm about to say like something in the Bible. They meet each other on the road to Damascus, <laughs> but they meet each other um, on the street and they run up to each other and they hug each other. And everybody's saying how wonderful that is. And oh my God, this is, this is, uh, you know, like, the, you know, this, this, <sighs> I, I used to, I used to, and I wrote a tweet about it um, because I used to think that I used to think, oh, that's so adorable. That is so cute. Until I realized that um, that's those those um, situations, those images are often you being used now to um, to justify or to dismiss um, the lived experiences of both of those young individuals because even at their age, they're being racialized and I. They didn't even look more than, I don't even, they look maybe less than three, about three years old. Um, and it is those images are used to say, hey, um, there's no race, you know, that we understand that racism is learned, but it is learned by a system. It's not about individuals. So when I see, I wrote this, I used to think these stories that these, were, uh, I used to think stories like this were adorable until I realized that they are often strategically used to silence and gaslight those who challenge the systems of white supremacy. This does not invalidate or cancel out the daily harm and um, our lived experiences. Because again, whiteness is, all, is seen as, as, as um, or is often, no, is demanded that it is seen on the, as an individual. So this individual experience does not negate the lived experiences of a community of people impacted by systems of oppression and racism, harm, and hate. Um, and so when you look at this one thing, it is not indicative or counsels out the fact that even at that age, the world is treating those two little boys very differently and it will continue to do so. So um, I want to bring that up. Uh, so I go back to my reading, but for all of, my, of that life shaping power, race is a, is a mirage, which doesn't lessen it for its force. We are what we see ourselves as, whether what we see exists or not. We are what people see us as, whether they see whether what they see exists or not. 
what people see in themselves and others, this has meaning and manifests itself in ideas and actions and policies, even if what we are seeing is an illusion. And this is the thing that, and this is why I don't argue about these things. This is why my default position is all whiteness is racist by design and can't be trusted by default because what people see in themselves and others has meaning and manifests itself in ideas and actions and policies, even if they are seeing it, even if what they are seeing is an illusion. I'm not going to, this is why I, the whole prove it to me, show me your data. Those tactics are used. Um, you can't, you can't argue with that because as he said, racist, racism, mirage. So if you don't take my lived experience as proof enough, I, there's nothing else I can give you because everything else is a mirage. Everything else is built into a system. No one is actually saying um, we are actively, we are creating an education system that will advantage white people over everyone else. No, that is not written anywhere or it's not written anywhere that we can read it. It just, you just have feel the impact of the system. And so all that going back and forth is something I'm not going to do. Um, so I do not pity my seven-year-old self for identifying racially as Black. I still identify as Black, not because I believe Blackness or race is a meaningful scientific category, but because our societies, our policies, our ideas, our history, and our cultures have rendered race and it and made it matter. And this is why I call myself black. I don't call myself African-American. Uh, um, as I said before, I wouldn't call myself an American because that is also supremacist. And it, it ignores that there's a North, South, East, um, North, South, and Central America. And American just becomes a default for the U.S. And um, I call myself black because this is what the systems in, my, in this country are used against me. Um, and so that's what I call myself. Um, I am among those who have been degraded by racist ideas, suffer under racist policies, and have nevertheless endured and built movements, cultures to resist or at least persist through this madness. So we're getting to the first question, the first question in our homework on page 38. Um, it says, Some people do not identify as white for the same reasons they identify as non-racist, as not racist. To avoid reckoning with the ways that whiteness, even as a construction of and a mirage, has informed their notions of America and identity and offered them privilege. The primary one being that the privilege of being inherently normal, standard, and legal. It is a racial crime to be yourself if you are not white in America. It is a racial crime to look like yourself or empower yourself if you are not white. So my first question, um, the first question is, um, I need you to find three examples of, being, of it being a crime for non-whites to be themselves or empower themselves. And so I have a bit of criteria for you because I don't want these to be, I want you to do some work. Many of you is lazy, are lazy as fuck and I want you to do some work. So it's going to, it's in three parts. So the first um, assignment is find three examples of being, of it being a crime 
for non-whites to be themselves and empower, or empower themselves. Your first example has to be from the past. Your second example has to be from the present. And your third example has to be one in which tech is used to enable the racial crime of being non-white. So let me say that again. Your first example has to be something from the past. Your second example has to be something from the present. And your third example has to be an example in which tech is used to enable the racial crime of not being white. All right. And so um, it says, um, it is one of the ironies of anti-racism that we must identify racially in order to identify the racial privileges and dangers of being in our bodies. And so I uh, wrote a little note. This is a problem with we're all one race. This is a <laughs> this is the people who don't see race, and we're race doesn't exist. And but biologically, we know it doesn't exist. But the systems that are in place make it exist um, because race is fundamentally a power a power construct of blended differences that live socially. Race creates new forms of power the power to categorize and judge, evaluate and downgrade, and downgrade, and include and exclude. Race makers use the power to process distinct individuals, ethnicities and nationalities into monolithic races. So um, this is how white people are, um, they would like to be, I'm Italian, I'm Irish, I'm whatever. But when you talk about blacks, you didn't, you don't care to figure out where we're from, even if we're not even um, uh, from the U.S. You could be from the Caribbean, you can be from the South America, you can be from anywhere, but they lump us all into being black. Um, but whiteness does not like to be um, the monolith. And that's why I always contrast whiteness against blackness, because I'm trying to um, create a balanced as, as balanced of an equation as I can in these um, instances. Um, then on page 39, the first global power to construct race happened to be the first racist power and the first, and the first exclusive slave trader um, of the constructed race of African people. So he gets into what he does best from, and, and it's, if you haven't read his book, Stamp from the Beginning, it's a, a history book. And so he gets into the history of how um, basically um, race became, because um, people think race came first. Race did not come first. The economics came first and the justification of the economics to enslave individuals, um, to, to justify that race was created. Um, and so, um, so it's just basically on 40, 41, he just talks about, um, so I highlighted this, despite their different skin colors and language and ethnic groups, I'm going to mispronounce this, Zura, um, blended them into a single group of people worthy of enslavement. So very early on, and this was in 1444, and uh, um, um, so very early on, race was used to justify enslavement of people. And um, so it says, from the beginning, to make races was to make racial hierarchy. Once a race has been created, it must be filled. Um, and Zora, Zora 
Zuraha filled it with negative qualities that would justify Prince Henry's event, um, evangelical mission to the world as a black race of people was lost living like beasts without any custom or reasonable beings. So um, this is another reason that I, I challenge um, missionary work because a lot of missionary work is, is rooted in assimilation um, where it sees that people are not inherently inferior, but there's something wrong with them and we need to make them more civilized, which is making them um, adhere to white customs. And I said, or at the bottom of this, I love how I come back to this. This reminds me of how white, whiteness changed uh, from Irish, um, Italians, English, because um, everybody was their ethnicity until whiteness shifted to include them. And so the next thing I um, highlighted was both racist constructions normalized and, and rationalized the increased importation of the supposedly strong enslaved Africans and the ongoing genocide of, of the supposedly weak Indians in the, Amer in the Americas. So um, for question two, it's going to be on page, uh, it's going to come from the reading on page 40. I said, do some research and find an example from the time of Zur, it's Z-U-R-A-R, Zurara, Zurara, um, lived from 1410 to 1475, 1474, because I want you to see the history of this. This is not new. That challenged the assertion that this, that challenged the assertion that this black race of people was lost, living like beasts, without any custom or reasonable beings. I need you to go back and look at history. And I want you to find a challenge to this, that black, the black race of people were lost, um, living like beasts. So, uh, and there are um, historical challenges to this. So I want you to do that work. And then um, I highlighted um, Prince Henry's racist policies of late, Slave trading came first, a cunning invention for the practical purpose of bypassing Muslim traders. After, after nearly two days of, excuse me, two decades of slave trading, King Alfonso asked Zorora to defend the lucrative commerce in human lives, which he did through the construction of a black race, an invented group upon which he hung racist ideas. This cause and effect a racist power creates racist policies out of raw self-interest. The racist policies necessitate racist ideas to justify them lingers over the life of racism. And so question three in your homework is uh, create a list of five ways racist ideas are being used to justify racist policies and to redirect the blame of racist inequalities away from those policies and into the people. Look beyond the obvious. So I don't want you to, I don't want you to look for examples of what's happening at the border. That's very obvious. I want you to do some work um, because these are your blind sides. If people aren't, if we aren't um, explicitly showing uh, whiteness things, you don't see it. So I want you to start seeing it. 
And the second part of this is how is technology being used to facilitate racist policies? Um, and then I'm going to end with this. The root problem has always been the self-interest of racist power, powerful economic, po political, and cultural interests has been behind racist policies. Then it says, um, then produce racist ideas to justify the racist policies of their era, to redirect the blame for, the, for their era's racial inequalities away from those policies and upon people. So let me go through your homework again, and then I'm going to read the question that um, came in to me. So your homework is three, three um, things. Um, from page 38, find three examples of it being a crime to, for non-whites to, to be themselves or empower themselves. So you need one example from the past, one example for the present, and one example in which tech is being, is being used to enable the racist crimes of being non-white. Um, number two is from page 40, and I want you to look for an example from do some, look for an example from the period of 1410 to 1474 that challenges the that challenges the assertion that this black race of people was lost living like beasts without any customs of re reasonable beings. And your third um, assignment is from page 43. List five ways racist ideas are being used to justify racist policies and to redirect the blame of for racial inequality policies away from um, those policies and unto, the, unto people. Again, don't look for the obvious. And I want you to share, figure out, or come up with some examples that include, to, that say, that uh, talk about how technology is being used to facilitate racist policies. Okay. So now I'm going to get into this. Um, it's a pretty long email. So I'm just going to read some of it and I'm going to talk through it. Hi. I read How to Be a Racist last week, and I'm following along on your podcast. I have a few questions I thought you might be willing to address regarding assimilation. Before I ask, I wanted to thank you for opening yourself up to questions like this. You've spoken about the emotional burden that people of color take on in educating white people. So I was hesitant to email and wouldn't have if you hadn't mentioned it at the start of the podcast. Um, this email is also long, so if you haven't got the time um, for it, I understand. When reading that chapter, I thought about the comment you made during your Right Speak Code talk about how Black women have to put a lot of energy into revising um, professional emails to make sure that they don't offend white women. And then in parentheses, similarly, as a white woman, I get frustrated that corporate culture norms developed around a predominantly black culture, end of parentheses. There may be a lot more to that than assimilation, but it seems likely that assimilation is a part of the problem. First, I wanted to ask if you think that's a fair link to make. I, am I unfairly simplifying the problem? Yes, you're unfairly simplifying the problem. Um, white women or women in, in, in corporate spaces are um, having to do some of the same work, um, and it may feel similar, but what your question or your belief negates is intersectionality. And so this is why I challenge often that white women are not tech, because 
when whiteness is in the room, whiteness is centered. So even though you're a white woman who is frustrated by the cultural norms of um, patriarchy, that's the only thing you focus on. This is where why white feminism is so harmful for women of color, particularly black women, um, because it, foc- it, it, it tries to force us to focus on only one part of our identity, um, and that is our gender, when our race, as we are learning, for many of us, is a bigger issue than our gender, our gen, excuse me, gender. So it is very much an unfair simplification of the problem because you really do not understand uh, if you have to ask this question, what I really meant. Um, what I mean is that every black woman can tell you that even if she is your supervisor, your manager on the job, and she has to correct you in, um, in something you've done, the, the amount of emotional labor it takes to just craft an email um, is beyond burdensome. So once you get this email, if you feel that it is in some way um, hurtful to you, it's, it becomes about your feelings. And we try to be as objective as we spend so much time taking out any subjective parts of this email and you still receive it as subjective about your feelings because you are centering your whiteness. This goes to, again, why I challenge, challenge, challenge all of this. And I'm just going to be, and I don't do absolutes. And so I'm going to do an absolute here until someone can give me a process, an objective process for measuring um, this compassionate empathy thing that is going on in, in, in our space right now. Uh, because what I see are opportunities for people who are targets of harm to continue to be targets of harm while these individuals who are supposed to be given the benefit of the doubt or um, to assume somebody's intentions are good causes me harm while they figure their shit out. And that is not acceptable. Developing compassion and empathy are skills. It's not something you that happened overnight. Just like with any skill, you have to go out and practice it and you will make mistakes. So even in your efforts to be compassionate and empathetic, people will be harmed. And I just, that is just not acceptable to me. You do that on your own time. You figure that out. Um, and, you, and, and so that's the first part of her question. So the next one is, second, I wanted to ask if there is a way for white women and men to signal that it is not, that is okay not, I mean, that it is okay to not, and she put that in caps, do the extra round of email revisions you're talking about without being overly racist. It is not about you being overly racist. The fact that um, you say don't do that is still, you're, you're in the power structure, but that doesn't change the system. See, this is, again, where I keep, I keep coming back to. It is not about individuals. These conversations are not individ- about individuals. It is about the systems that allow this to happen. This is about the systems that, that communicate, even though it's not in writing. 
it communicates to these black women that this is this is a standard operating procedure because if you don't do this there will be consequences to it so a white ma- um, manager or a white man a female or female can say these things but i'm not going to believe that because yes it might be it might work on your team but what if i have to write an email to someone above you uh, equal up here next to me or even somebody below me and they don't have that same understanding or giving me that or have that same then I again am put in harm so it's not about you as an individual it's about changing the systems and so uh, my last question I'm afraid may reveal how far behind I am in thinking about these issues but I hope you will take it in the spirit of trying to learn and improve and your talk at right speak code and some of your tweets you spoke about how words like aggressive and intimidating are applied to black women unfairly. I'm wondering if this is an issue of bias perception or if it's, this is an issue of assimilate, uh, assimilism. As an example, you and I had a brief interaction at the conference and I was quickly intimidated by your demeanor. In your opinion, is that is that is the problem that I'm applying levels of interpretation to your actions so that as perceived by my biased white brain, these actions are intimidating or is the problem that there is a different set of cultural norms and I'm expecting you to assimilate? Or is there a third option? I identify racism underlining both of those articulations of the problem but I don't know what the anti-racist answer is. It is the third option. Um, A lot of this goes back to, again, what I just said, aggressive and intimidating. If you really look at the definitions of these words, and this is why I define words when I talk, um, if, if, if my behavior, how you interpret my behavior, if that's, it's, it's, so this is a thing when, People will argue intention and impact. So, and this is why also I'm not looking for equality. And this is why I had a conversation with someone about um, a part of the reading about we have to discriminate. There's a level of discrimination that has to happen against whiteness in order to do anti-racist work. And here's an example of that. Um, Because... Aggression and intimidation, if you felt that um, when you encountered me, those are your issues, not mine. And this is the problem. You feeling intimidated is something you need to work on. If I did not, if you look at the definitions and and what I said was clear, I did not, uh, and this is what I do. I'm very clear about what I say because I don't want to be misinterpreted. I, um, I don't give a fuck about civility. So if you're, um, did or said something and I challenge it, I'm not thinking about your feelings. I don't care about your feelings. Those, your feelings are your responsibility for black women. Our feelings have always been about our responsibility. Plus your response, your feelings are our responsibility. What I'm saying is our, your feelings are no longer our responsibility. So if I, so you'll call us threatening. All of this goes back to, and, and, and you, white people don't want to deal with this, but it goes back to what I just talked about, um, 
um, making us, putting, casting us in, in, um, in um, narratives that make us beasts and animals and gorillas and, and, and these, these things. That's what intimidation and aggression is. It's made, it, when you say those things, and that, in, particularly in the work environment, particularly if, uh, or if I'm just having a conversation and you feel intimidated because of your shit, what you're doing is uh, promoting those ideas that I am an animal. I am somebody who needs to be controlled. And when you do that, you dehumanize me and then you can easily justify the racist harm that happens to us. And we see it in how criminal justice and how police treat white people who can go shoot up a, a church, a synagogue or a school, and they are apprehended without incident. And a black person stopped at a traffic light walking down the street or whatever, and they are killed because the system enables whiteness to, to cast us in roles of animals, which need to, who, which need to be controlled and how you can, and how you deem it appropriate to control that animal is justified by the system. So if you don't like that answer I just gave and that not just speaking to the person who wrote this, um, this, I need you all to think about that. Your emotions, your feelings are yours. If you can't deal with them, you need to go to counseling. You need to do whatever you need to because your feelings are no longer my responsibility. This is why fucks civility because civility is optional for white people and it's the expected behavior of people of color and black people in the United States because it is how you control us. I will no longer be controlled by whiteness. So, um, if you have any questions, please send your questions to podcast at hashtag causeascene.com. Um, again, I'm trying out this um, format, so please give me some feedback on what you thought about adding homework. Um, you know, I'm an educator. I have to, this, I'm just, it's like the reading is just not enough for me. Um, for you, I need you to do some work, some active work. I need you to do some research because whiteness is ignorant by design. And I need you to start, you don't know your history. You don't know history, period. And I need you to start doing some homework. Also, one thing I wanted to um, suggest is I saw some of the hashtag causes sponsors, the women had gotten, have gotten together to start a book club. And so they're working together as they listen to the podcast. And maybe that would um, be beneficial to you. So with that, I'll say thank you and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Hashtag Call the Scene podcast. I would like once again to give thanks to the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Learn more about his work at his website at ibramxkendi.com. Please consider becoming an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene movement by visiting the website at hashtagcallthescene.com. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.